The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I thought I'd begin with a little body meditation just to make sure we're doing our best to make friends. Because it's easy, I'm sure you've noticed, unfortunately, it's easy to be at war with the body and to feel quite convinced that my unhappiness or difficulties, you know, that I can place it at, blame my body for it. If only my knee didn't hurt, or if only. Sounds like mice downstairs. It's good to know we have to track that one down. Paul is our mouse catcher, and we catch him in a live trap and bring him to the river and wish them well. This is from the Buddha, just talking about mindfulness of the body. Whosoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing and awakening. When one thing is practiced and pursued, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are stilled, and all the qualities on the side of clear knowing go to their culmination of their development. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, Ignorance is abandoned, clear knowing arises, the conceit I am is abandoned, latent tendencies are uprooted, fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Some of you know this, but the deathless is a a word the Buddha used to point to that which is beyond birth and death, the unconditioned or awakening. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. That's sort of a provocative statement. So maybe, you know, a few minutes ago when we were immersed in the body, mindfulness immersed in the body, right? That's what we were doing. It's important to not imagine that nibbana, freedom, is like a couple galaxies away. So when we have some stability of presence with the body, with the present moment, it's important to just be curious, like what I was saying before about what's here but not yet being recognized. Because there may be some freedom here, some real space of freedom 
space of unconditional love and forgiveness and the profound absence of aversion and resistance, there may be threads of that already there in our heart and mind in the moment. But we're pretty convinced I'm, a neuro- I'm still a neurotic guy, right? So that's what we pay attention to. And we're not sensitive. We haven't learned to be interested in the flavor of the deathless, of the, of the profound and simple freedom that's never far away. Those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. And like I mentioned in the guided sit, you know, mindfulness of the body, it's really our way in to the reality of the present moment. In a way, what we want to do is uh, train the mind, like with every ache and pain, with every wholesome or rather pleasant or unpleasant experience of the body. It's like uh, the Buddha, the wise one themselves, calling to us, I'm here. Honey, I'm here. Please join me. Please come and meet me here in the wild, the wildness of the present moment. Because as we, and you know, a lot of us who have been sitting for a while, we can develop the shadow of like aversion to the body, like our personal ball and chain, you know, like, boy, I could really meditate if I didn't have a body. Because that's a compelling thought. It sounds right in a way. Like if, because, you know, when our body does feel good, we're not bothered like the first, maybe not the first few minutes of the sit, but hopefully every once in a long while, you're sitting and your body's not bothering you. And, uh, you know, you might notice that the mind settles down. But that piece is a pretty fragile piece because it depends on conditions being a particular way, like the body not having painful sensations. And then when they return, we often feel betrayed. How dare you? I thought you were gone, and yet you're there. That's not fair. meditation, this cultivation of mindful awareness and this willingness to relax into the reality of mindful awareness and then learning how to sustain (coughs) present moment awareness and learning with that some stability, some continuity of mindful awareness, whatever it is that we're aware of, Uh, training the attitude. So instead of taking it personally, which is our habit, see, experience it as nature. Causes and conditions unfolding naturally, 
impersonally, like a river, never really a thing. Oh, this is how it is for me. It isn't pointed to oh, some static truth. But like uh, the person was saying, Jana was saying earlier this afternoon, something without ground, something that's open and can't be established. And the Buddha was really, you know, he, he didn't hold back. He really said, this is the way. There's a famous beginning of the Buddhist talk on mindfulness where he says, this is the direct path for the purification of our heart, for the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method for the realization of unbinding. That's how one translator translates the word, you know, awakening, the unbinding of the heart. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness, which four? There is the case where a practitioner remains aware of the body, aware of the feeling tone in the mind, aware of the mind, the quality of the mind, aware of the wholesome and unwholesome qualities of the mind. So basically the mind and body uh, remains aware of the mind and body in and of themselves, ardent, alert, aware, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, with reference to our self-centered notions. Another person translates that last part, abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So to be open to the body, to the present moment, is this abiding independent, not clinging to anything. We can't really meet the moment, whether the moment is meeting the experience of the body, meeting painful thought, meeting an interesting sound. So it doesn't matter what the phenomena is that we're opening to in the present moment. We can't really meet it and be in control. I'd like to as soon as I establish myself as the observer, I've distorted the experience. So there's, uh, to really meet the moment, everything has to be let go of. You know, we talk about this as receptivity. So instead of me as a meditator, as a practitioner, doing something to get some result, that's why this value of relaxation is something not to take lightly, but to really directly explore all day long. But what's in the way of relaxation? What's in the way of softening? What's in the way of allowing? In the way of being more open and receptive? Because we could check right now as I mentioned yesterday, you know, when we do that, when we just allow the body, heart, and mind to relax and settle, like a snow globe, you know, you shake it up, but if you leave it alone, it just settles. So if I'm not here trying to be a good Buddhist or a good meditator, stirring things up, things will settle. We let things settle. 
And the awareness is here. And we can't even shut it off. Try it. Try to stop being aware. So it's really more about trust and, a, and this word I like, I'm learning to like more and more, abiding. Like trusting, abiding, resting. But there's still some effort because, it, because it's not the habit of our minds. We have to make the effort to discern, to recognize that present moment awareness, that reflective knowing. Oh yeah, this is being known. Always alive with change, because of moment. And, it, and it's never enough to be mindful in one moment, because it has to be like real mindfulness. It has to be constantly, ceaselessly, ceaselessly renewed, right, to get that continuity. Because, you know, we're, we're sort of used to a burst of interest in reality, you know. Oh, okay, now I got it. Now I don't have to be interested anymore. But because the present moment is a thing that we're interested in and then we get it, and then we're done, right, it's like, a, it's like you go down to the Mississippi and, okay, I see the, the Mississippi. But, you know, it's, it's alive with change on all levels. Even if our mind says, oh yeah, this is the scene I saw the last time I went out in Mississippi. But it's not really the same. The clouds aren't the same. The water isn't the same. Nothing really is actually completely the same. It's just our thought, concept, Mississippi, that has the nature of being static and fixed. Not reality. Just like the thought about me, Mark, that concept can have a fixed sense to it, but there's nothing fixed about anything. So I often say, um, I like saying at least, that in our early Buddhist tradition, Theravada Buddhism, that we practice here at Common Ground, which basically means... Uh, most of us teachers, you know, we're interested in the teachings of this person, the Buddha, this person who lived 25, 2600 years ago, and people who have done their best, because it's an imperfect process, try to get a sense of what this person taught. And so people who are more um, interested in these teachings from this person and different riffs on those particular teachings, we more and more these days refer to ourselves as people you know, early, who practice early Buddhism. Or insight meditation you hear a lot. And in this kind of way of practicing, reality is our devotional object. <laughs> you know, we have some statues here, but uh, another sort of religious, <laughs> spiritual forms kind of help evoke a sense of sacredness and yeah, that what the work, work that we're doing is really important for ourselves and for our whole world. 
But actually, what should and does eventually move our hearts isn't a statue of somebody who lived 2,500 years ago or his aunt who raised him because the Buddha's mother died at birth. It's Mahapajapati there next to the Buddha who became one of the enlightened ones at the you know, later. She became a student of the Buddha. <clears throat> a few years after the Buddha's deep insight and he kind of traveled around, but eventually traveled back to the area where he was born and raised. And several of his relatives joined the Sangha, the monastic Sangha, including his aunt who raised him. And she became the first Buddhist nun and an important teacher. Yeah, and so we have, you know, these ideas of the Buddha and we can use those ideas and images to kind of remind us what's possible. But the devotional object, what we, in a sense, in a spiritual sense, what we really fall in love with is reality, which is always here and now, which is profound because that means that in our practice, in our spiritual practice over decades, we never need a moment that's different than the moment that's arising. Any moment will do, because it's always real. <laughs> you know, we never, we never have any distance from reality. And, uh, you know, in, in our tradition, we refer to that as Dhamma or Dharma. And Buddha, not the historic person, but the concept Buddha is this capacity to be radically open and intimate with Dhamma the way it is. Any moment will do. And the more we get a sense of that, and I'm imagining that most of us have had a few, if not many, moments, ordinary moments, where the mind came into balance, whether you were formally practicing or not, and there was a sense of something opening up, the mystery, something sacred, profound, and the learning or confidence that comes out of those experiences. And you might wrongly attribute that, oh, I was in a nice woods walking, so it was a special place, the holy woods. It wasn't the holy woods. It's that the qualities of the mind were in balance, so the mind that knows awakened to Dhamma, the way it is, the thusness, suchness that's here and now. See Ari sitting over there. She's done some beautiful photographs for us at our retreat center. You can see them on our website. But that's what artists try to do, right? They, they try to be this gateway to the mystery, to what's naturally profound and beautiful. Whether it's through photography or dance or, you know, whatever the modality, even writing. And our way is kind of the direct way. Right? Just uh, relying on this capacity of each of our hearts 
to be, we have, I mean, it has to be, it's like a spiritual muscle that needs to be developed, but the potential, the capacity is there, this to open the stability of present moment awareness, continuity of present moment awareness, and it changes everything. There's a really poignant statement, you know, where um, Ananda, I think this is a place where Ananda was sort of lamenting the loss of uh, some of his teachers and the aging of the Buddha. And, and the Buddha says to Ananda, his attendant, who's also his cousin, but for many decades, I don't know, 30 years or so, the Buddha talked for about 45 years after his deep awakening. And for several decades of that, Ananda, his cousin, was his attendant. It was always there. And he had a really good memory, so it was great, because the reason we have some of these talks is he had a very natural ability to memorize what the Buddha said in all these different situations. So we have 40 volumes of recorded teachings that kind of, for about 500 years, got passed down orally. And then eventually got written down, and you know, imperfectly. So, uh, but anyway, the Buddha says to Ananda, "What should be done for one's disciples out of compassion by a teacher who sees their welfare, who seeks their welfare, that I have done for you, Ananda. There are these roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate, Ananda. Do not delay." or else you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Because <laughs> it's, so, it's so easy for us to think, well, yeah, those are good teachings. Kind of get it. But we just keep looking for more teachings instead of taking, even if it seems to us like little scraps of teachings that we can work with, and just working with them, see where that leads. It's like, First, let me collect all the teachings and become the world expert on the teachings. You know, and it's sort of like we go in our little room, whether it's in our mind or actual library or notes, you know, and we're constantly shuffling them around and, as opposed to putting them into practice, taking one note, remembering one little gem that seems relevant, like... What's the mind doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, really, that could be it for us. We could just remember that one instruction to ask the question from time to time, what's the mind doing? How's the mind? And the key is to see it as a gateway to the present moment. Not to wonder if that's the right question to ask, is it a good enough question to ask, right? Whatever teaching we're working with, is it just good enough to break the spell of distractedness, which is our habit, just to want to... I mean, we're either thinking about mundane things or we're thinking about Buddhist practice. So we could be just as obsessed and disconnected by thinking about Buddhist practice as we can about buying a new car or whatever your relationship. And this uh, statement, you know, you may, you may wonder, like, uh, 
what teachings is the Buddha referring to? And so this is a, related to that statement, you know, advising Ananda to find the roots. See, remember back in the day, they had virgin forests probably, so the roots of the trees, those tropical trees, were relatively nice shelter for someone who doesn't have a home. And the monks and the nuns didn't have homes. Sometimes, you know, if they were staying, especially during the rainy season, the local people where they were staying, you know, usually woods near a village, they'd build them little huts and, you know, try to put something, some kind of roof to keep some of the rain off of them. But a lot of times they would just practice and even sleep under trees because there's some protection there. So there are roots of trees, empty huts, meditate. And so this is the, you know, one of the many instructions from the Buddha. The Buddha says, now how Ananda in this training of the awakened ones, is there an unexcelled development of the faculties? The faculties are just those qualities of the mind that lead onward to awakening, faith, energy, awareness, the stability and continuity of awareness or concentration, and the wisdom that comes from that. Those are the five faculties. Faith, energy to persist, persisting leads to awareness of the present moment, sustaining that awareness leads to concentration, or sometimes we call that the unification or stability of the mind, which inevitably leads to the deepening of wisdom which leads to more confidence or faith, more energy to persist, more stability of awareness, more insight, and it just builds like that. So how, in this training of the awakened ones, is there this development of these powerful faculties of the heart and mind? There is this case where, when seeing a form with the eye, seeing a sight with the eye, there arises what is agreeable, like a pleasant sight. What is disagreeable? An unpleasant sight. What is both agreeable and disagreeable? Something that's mixed, right? And he does this with all the different senses. A sound, an agreeable sound, disagreeable sound, agreeable or disagreeable touch, or something mixed, taste, smell, and thought, too, because mental activity could be agreeable a memory, a thought, or disagreeable, or mixed. So he's, you can just hear this in terms of all of these different sense gates. So something arises what is agreeable or disagreeable in our sense experience. And this person, right, training well, discerns this agreeable thing has arisen in me, or this disagreeable thing has arisen in me, or this mixed you know, both agreeable and disagreeable thing has arisen in me. And that is a condition constructed, dependently co-arisen phenomenon, right? So it's just like whatever it is that arises in our experience through sight, through sound, through touch, smell, taste, thought. Oh, this is arising conditionally. It's constructed. We, we literally are constructing our experience. Like when I see one of you or I see some aspect of this room or hear the blower in the background, hear the scratching of the mouse like we did a few minutes ago, 
right? That experience is constructed in my heart, mind, right away from past experience, right? It's like with the mouse sound, it was like, oh, I got a problem that I got to solve. <laughs> you know, oh, you know, that sort of burden. How are we going to track that one down? So we're constructed. And, and the Buddha says, but we want to discern that that experience, whether it was agreeable or disagreeable, is something that has arisen. It's showing up and being known. And that whatever it is that's showing up is arising conditionally, compounded, worldly, ordinary, dependently co-arisen, meaning there are causes and conditions. It's lawful. It's not a mistake that I'm thinking this way, feeling this way, experiencing this way right now. Just like when we experience weather, we go, yeah, of course, can't be different given all the causes and conditions. This is how it is today. Or with a friend that's pushing our buttons or with our friend that's delighting us. Yeah, given all the causes and conditions, this is how it feels to be around this person. It's lawful that I'm reacting in a positive way or in a negative way to this person, given all that's in motion here. Right? So when that's like learning how to see with a wise attitude. Remember that fourth instruction from Sayada Utejaniya, check your attitude. Are we experiencing the present moment, whatever the experience is, as nature? Or are we taking it personally and have a personal opinion? It shouldn't be this way. I always want it to be this way, or whatever the reaction might be. Hmm? So the stimulus is always neutral. No, that's the whole point about agreeable, disagreeable, or mixed. That's the other. Isn't that our interpretation? Right, right. But the, but the, it will be agreeable, like like a an enlightened one. Just imagine, or in those moments when we have a lot of momentum in our practice. We can still discern whether this experience is painful or pleasant. But the equanimity, this is the neutrality you're talking about, Paul. It's neutrality, it's equanimity with the agreeableness or the disagreeableness of the phenomena that we're knowing. So I can have pain in my body, and it can be a real problem for me when I'm sitting. And I can have the same sensations, painful sensations in my body, but there can be a lot of equanimity. But it's equanimity with painful or equanimity with really pleasant experience too, of course, and mixed. And that's where he's going to go right now. Just that point you brought up, um, Paul. The Buddha says here, but this is peaceful, this is exquisite, i.e. equanimity. With that, the arisen agreeable thing, the disagreeable thing, the mixed thing ceases. And equanimity takes its stance. And what the Buddha means by that is it really matters what we pay attention to. So when there's a lot of wisdom and awareness and the equanimity that arises with the wisdom and awareness, and we're aware, we're keeping that in mind, then 
that the great rivers of our life, the different thoughts and emotions that come and go, the different sounds that come and go, the different sensations that come and go, we're aware, we're established in a sense in the equanimity, in the equanimity that flows out of wisdom, not the person who is delighted by the pleasant, feel, feels overwhelmed by the painful. So we're, in a way we're learning to ground or establish the mind in a wise way of understanding, which is really understanding that, yeah, this is how it is. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. And it doesn't mean that we, like if we're, the knee is really hurting, you know, we can stretch the leg out or change the posture. Oh, it feels better. So it's not about not moving, but it's about, like, sometimes there isn't anything we can do with what's disagreeable. Or there isn't any way to hold on to what is agreeable, what is pleasant. And so we can be happily, like happily let it go. Having a nice interaction with a friend, but the time is over and the person has to leave. And it's like we could cling and want it to last. We could lament that this pleasant interaction is over. Or we could just happily give it away. Okay, that was good. Now it's ending. And it's really just aligning. Like, are we going to take our stance on the never-ceasing, arising, passing away of pleasant and unpleasant experience? Because if we do, we're going to be all lifelong pushed around by the roller coaster of pleasant experience coming and then leaving and painful experience showing up and then eventually leaving because we're in the habit of being identified with it. And the Buddha says here, there's something interesting at the end of this little teaching. Just as a person with good eyes, having closed them, might open them, or having opened them, might close them. That is how quickly, how rapidly, how easily, no matter what it refers to, the arisen, agreeable thing, disagreeable thing, or mixed thing, ceases. And equanimity takes its stance. In the discipline of the awakened ones. This is called the unexcelled development of the faculties with regard to forms, sounds, sensations, smells, tastes, thoughts, right? We're replacing the reaction to what's pleasant and unpleasant, what we like, what we dislike, with this radiant balance of equanimity arising out of wisdom. Now it's like this. Now being on retreat feels like a hell realm. Or now being on retreat feels like a heavenly realm. So appreciate being around everyone. My body and mind feel tranquil. The mind, the heart is still and bright and clear. The emotional tone is unbounded, unconditional love in all directions. Yeah. Now it's like this. It's just this being known. 
and then a little bit later in the day, want to beat people up and <laughs> throw chairs and things are difficult and feel hopeless and you feel like a fool for having signed up for the retreat and wondering if it would be weird to sneak out. And then, and wisdom knows what to do with that too. Oh, now it's like this. It feels like this. Can this be okay? That's, sometimes it's like this. The heart is without hope. Feels despair. Despair is something being known. And that's that getting established in the equanimity as opposed to the mind being identified or established in the disagreeableness or the agreeableness. And that's just a simple way of understanding the choice. There's always this possibility of simply being aware with wisdom. It's like this. And that has that flavor of equanimity, that beautiful and radiant balance, that sense of space, vast space. Oh, yeah. That understands the kind of big picture. Oh, yeah, sometimes it's like this. It will last, it will persist for a while, and then it will change. And that's our refuge. That's what we mean, like when Shelley spoke about the refuges last night, the Buddha and Dhamma especially. But then that blossoms into Sangha, like this capacity to be responsive and engaged because we know how to be intimate, because we know how to be equanimous when it, with the beautiful experiences that come our way, with the terrible experiences that come our way. But we have to practice that. We have to build the confidence. That's that engine of the faculties. Faith. Faith comes, whatever wisdom, trust we have, whether it's borrowed from the teachings of the Buddha or from your own direct experience, we use it to establish some confidence which allows our heart to persist, to make effort, to be present, to be open, to be receptive with some continuity so that it, it builds some momentum. That's the concentration which allows the mind to see the rightness, the fruit of this continuity of awareness, which is equanimity, the peace of non-attachment, non-clinging, which builds the confidence. Oh, I don't need a different experience. I don't need a different personality. I don't need a different body. I don't need to live in a different world that's more just, less oppressive. I can still engage but I don't have to postpone peace and ease until I have a better body, a better world, a better personality, a better bank account, and a better Buddhist teacher. We can, the freedom that our heart really seeks is here and now. As Ajahn Sumedho says, one of his little pithy statements, he's one of our elders, as a Western Buddhist teacher, he's been a monk for, it's got to be getting close to, maybe it is already 50 years. And he um, says, yesterday is past. No, the past is, doesn't exist. I'm, this is a bad paraphrase, sorry. I have it written down somewhere, but the past is gone. And, and, and that, don't just like, oh yeah. But I mean, see right now in your own 
experience. The past literally doesn't exist anywhere. I mean, we have thoughts now about the past, but those are thoughts here and now. The past is literally gone, and the future is absolutely not here. If we have thoughts about the future, like going home to bed tonight, that's a thought here and now. That's not the future. The future doesn't exist. The past is gone. And then he says, now is the knowing. And to me, that's a powerful invitation to sort of not get so entangled in my imaginings of the past, the present, and the future, and realize that now is the knowing. To really see, even if it's initially we're borrowing the confidence of the Buddha and our teachers, but to really sense the possibility, at least, of this awareness that the three of us have been talking about as an actual functional refuge that delivers what the heart really wants. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.